Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, our theme is costumes and fashion, and today we're talking about Disney's 1950 film, Cinderella. with one daughter remarries to a new wife who brings two of her own daughters to the family. When her husband unexpectedly passes away, the wife and her daughters, Lady Tremaine, Anastasia, and Drizella, spend away the deceased husband's fortune and turn his daughter into a servant. The servant, of course, is Cinderella. We see Cinderella going about her chores together with her menagerie of animal friends. On her rounds, she discovers a mouse caught in a trap, whom she clothes and names Gus. Jacques and the other mice introduce Gus to Cinderella and the other critters in the house, including Lucifer the cat, who is naturally their enemy. Cinderella's stepfamily treat her cruelly, overburdening her with chores and letting her live in rags. We discover, meanwhile, that the king of the kingdom is desperate for his son to be married. He instructs the duke to organize a ball that same evening to which every maid in the kingdom should be invited. When Cinderella's household receives word of the ball, her stepmother tells her she may attend, but only if she finishes her numerous duties and also can find something to wear. Thrilled, Cinderella pulls out her mother's dress, which, though she finds it old-fashioned, she believes she can alter to something more fashionable with a sewing pattern she finds in a book. However, as her stepfamily find more and more things for her to do, she finds no time to work on the dress. Seeing this, Jacques, Gus, and the other mice and birds decide to alter the dress for her, stealing discarded accessories from Cinderella's stepsisters to liven up the outfit. Cinderella retires to her room, thinking she has run out of time to prepare for the ball, but finds her dress waiting for her. In her new dress, she rushes to catch up with her stepfamily as they leave, but when Drizella and Anastasia discover Cinderella wearing some of their possessions, they tear apart her ensemble. Cinderella wanders outside in tears, whereupon appears her fairy godmother, who creates a dress as well as a carriage and all attendant accessories so that Cinderella may attend the ball. The fairy godmother warns her that she has until midnight before the magic wears off. At the ball, we see the prince board with every young woman he encounters until Cinderella arrives just in time. The two spend the evening together, and the king and duke are overjoyed that the prince has finally found someone he likes. As the clock strikes midnight, however, Cinderella realizes she is out of time and rushes away before the prince can even get her name. She leaves one of her glass slippers behind. When the king's horsemen are unable to catch her, the king commands the duke to take the errant slipper and try it on every woman in the kingdom until he finds the woman from the ball. When the family receive word of the proclamation, Lady Tremaine realizes that Cinderella is the woman they are looking for and she locks her into her tower so that she cannot try on the slipper. When the duke arrives at Cinderella's home, the stepsisters try unsuccessfully to fit their large feet into the tiny slipper. Meanwhile, Cinderella's menagerie have conspired to steal the key to get Cinderella out of the tower, managing to push Lucifer out a window in the process. R.I.P. Cinderella descends the stairs just in time, only for Lady Tremaine to trip the footman carrying the slipper, causing the shoe to shatter. Cinderella consoles the very upset Duke, producing from her pocket the other slipper, which had also survived the stroke of midnight. Cinderella and the prince are married and live happily ever after. I must admit, when I was writing this summary, I wondered if it was 
even necessary because doesn't everybody know the story? But in any case, David, what are your thoughts about this movie after seeing it for the first time in, I don't know, how long? Uh, probably since I was a little kid. I think, I, I think I've seen clips since then, but I've never watched it, you know, the entire thing back to front that I can remember. My first thought was that the film's structure was incredibly strange. I went in with the expectation that it would be largely about Cinderella, and I think most of it really isn't. Most of the focus of the film is actually on these kind of vignettes with uh, the mice and the cat. Like, that's almost the entire first act is the cat Lucifer, like, terrorizing the mice and that kind of, you know, antagonistic relationship. And then a lot of the, the second and third acts also have to do more with the king and um, the, what's his uh, second in command? The um, Duke. The Duke. Um, it, it's mostly like kind of their interaction, which is very slapstick typically, uh, leaving very little room for what I thought of, thought this movie was about, right? Cinderella and the evil stepmother and stepsisters and her, you know, her betrothed and everything. I thought that was a kind of a shockingly small portion of the film. Yeah, that's true. Um, It had been a while since I saw this movie, and I didn't remember the little critters taking taking up as much time as they did. And I did read that that was kind of a conscious decision on part of Disney when they were making it to expand the role of the animals. I do know also that when Sleeping Beauty came out, which was nine years later, that was the first princess movie where they did much character development for the prince. In this and in Snow White, you don't know that much about him, except like in here, he doesn't really want to get married, and that's about it. Well, along those lines, uh, I think that the second or third to last shot of the film shows Cinderella waving, you know, out of the carriage as they're they're riding off, and they didn't even bother to animate the prince in that shot, right? Uh Because, no, you know, no one's interested, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to get into it, but this is a fairy tale. So you, I think you tend to get a lot of relatively flat characters, but I still think it's interesting how really you get to see more of the personality of the stepsisters and the stepmother than you do of the prince. So let's go ahead and talk about that. This story is based on a fairy tale, and there are many, many different versions of Cinderella. And European versions of this story date back to the ancient Greeks, um, including the plot element of the shoe. But this version of the Cinderella story is based more or less on Charles Perrault's version of the story. Charles Perrault was a Frenchman who published um, Cinderella in 1697 in a book of compiled fairy tales, along with Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood, Puss in Boots, and many others. And he more or less founded the fairy tale as the genre we know today. So if you've read a little bit about the history of fairy tales, you might know that they originated more or less as folk tales that people, specifically adults, um, developed to tell to each other. So if you know some older versions of these stories, a lot of time they're a lot more grisly or there's a lot more sexual elements That's because they were told to adults. But starting with Perot, as far as I understand it, they began to be altered to be geared more toward children. And Disney is famous for making fairy tales more palatable palatable that way. But Disney was 
not the first to do that. Also, what's important about Perot is that he introduced this, the fairy godmother, the glass slippers, and the pumpkin as plot elements, which you see prominently in the movie. And I wonder, David, how you feel about fairy tales generally or as a source for movie material. Well, so I think um, uh, fairy tales are, are obviously constantly being used uh, as sources in film. The the Disney company is very famous for kind of taking taking these stories and like sanitizing them, you know, making them into family affairs, uh, films that like children can watch. Although I distinctly, even watching this movie for the first time in years, there was one section when the cat was going after Gus and I remembered like, oh, I remember this scared me when I was a little kid. So, Aww. you know, sanitize <laughs> it all you want. Children are still going to be terrified. Um, I would say kind of since Tim Burton and in particular Edward Scissorhands, but probably a little bit before that with um, Terry Gilliam's work. So those two filmmakers, they kind of deal a lot with fairy tale sensibilities, even when they're not necessarily actually adapting a fairy tale. But like Edward Scissorhands is very clearly inspired by like Grimm's fairy tales, right? And, you know, the same thing with something like The Adventures of, um, or uh, rather Time Bandits from Terry Gilliam. Those films, because they dealt a little more heavily with the the darker elements of the stories, that's kind of what we've been getting more recently. And since maybe about 2008, 2007, 2008, with the release of The Dark Knight, uh, a lot there's been kind of a cottage industry within the general film industry for kind of dark gritty adaptations of things that were considered like nice or fluffy or whatever and that i'm i'm very very tired of that um the disney treatment which is actually seen as as being very standard i felt like watching it this time was actually kind of refreshing because um for example, I, I saw not too long ago, or I guess when movie theaters were still open, I saw Gretel and Hansel, the Osgood Perkins horror film that was based on the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale, which was very well done and very well shot. But I, I think I didn't enjoy it as much specifically because this kind of uh, fairy tales are actually very dark. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a tired, worn out cliche at this point. Well, speaking of Disney's interpretation in particular of Cinderella, Snow White had come out in 1937 as their first feature-length animation. But since that time, they had failed to make a feature-length animation that was as successful as that movie. Um, so we're all very familiar with Pinocchio, Fantasia, Dumbo, and Bambi. Those are the four movies that came out immediately following Snow White. Those to different degrees were not nearly as successful. There seems to be a couple reasons why this happened. Some people say that perhaps it was just that the novelty factor of Snow White is what drew so many audiences. And with the subsequent films, it just just wasn't a new thing. It was just like, okay, well, that was nice. Now we're back to live action movies, right? Because that's a standard. But maybe the bigger factor is uh, World War II. Just as Disney was ramping up, uh, World War II broke out and Pinocchio came out 
I don't remember. It was either right before or right after the beginning of World War II. So it was just really bad timing because that shut off the whole European market to them. As we talked about in our Three Caballeros episode, since they had been expanding, Disney opened a new animation studio, and that immediately got repurposed to make uh, World War II propaganda for the the U.S. government. And so um, after uh, Bambi and, you know, all those other films, we eventually came to understand as classics. But for the time being, they didn't do that well. So after Bambi, uh, Disney transitioned to making the World War II propaganda and also something you might call filler, right? Movies that maybe are kind of good, but just not well known to us today. In fact, most people would probably have a difficulty naming any of the films that came out um, in the mid to late 40s because none of those have really survived except for maybe Song of the South. And that's for um, infamous reasons, right? Uh, And a lot of those films also were live action or a combination of live action and animation rather than a full length animated feature. But in any case, finally, in 1950, they were able to put together Cinderella. um, And evidently, Walt Disney had wanted to do Cinderella almost immediately after Snow White. But because of the financial issues, he wasn't able to. But in 1950 or before 1950, He greenlit Cinderella as well as several of the subsequent films. So in the 1950s, you got Cinderella and then Alice in Wonderland, uh, Peter Pan, Lady and the Tramp, Sleeping Beauty. Um, And that's, I guess, maybe the second Disney Golden Age, you could kind of call it. A lot of our well-known films are from that period. Very importantly... Cinderella's success. So Cinderella did become successful. That led to the funding that Disney was able to use to get into television. As we've talked about before with animation, it's very common to have multiple directors. Um, So here we had uh, Clyde Geronimi. He was also, I believe he directed part of Three Caballeros. And Hamilton Lusk and Wilfred Jackson, the three of them directed this film together. And the actors who contributed to this film, mostly actresses, they, for the most part, did the speaking and singing voices, but they were also the live action references uh, that the animators used to animate the motions of the characters. And they used a similar approach to what you saw when we discussed the Japanese movie Magic Boy where they use live-action references for the human characters, but they took a freehand approach to the animals, presumably because mice, the mice in Cinderella, are pretty far removed from real-life mice. I don't know if you came across an answer to this during your, your research, but the, uh, the King and the Duke, were there actually like actors, like models that those characters were modeled after? I do not recall them specifically. I can look really quick. Why, why do you ask? Well, specifically because they think they work in a much better way than, for example, Cinderella does. My big takeaway, I think, watching this movie this time was it was how kind of uncanny valley she looked. I was really not super into how they animated her and especially contrasting her with all the animals who felt like they were so much more lively because they had that free hand, like very, very open, vivid motion to them. And Cinderella felt like they were trying to match some degree of realism that was very off-putting. It's funny because you're not the first person I've heard that from, that in movies like Cinderella and Snow White, there is an uncanny valley, valley element to it. 
I don't think I ever noticed that because I saw those movies when I was so young that it just always seemed natural. But you were asking, and I just looked up now, the king and the Grand Duke, as well as the doorman, did not have live action references. So that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I presume there would have been a live action reference for the uh, stepmother. There, there was, and there were live action references for the stepsisters as well, and Prince Charming, of course. I think with the stepmother, that's actually incredibly effective because they have these moments of like really gothic horror, like really quite terrifying frames in this film of her face. And particularly when she realizes that Cinderella was like the mysterious woman at the ball and we get the shot of her and her face darkens. And I think that the uncanny valley element, I think, really played up the best parts of those shots. Oh, and she wound up on the Beverly Hillbillies, Eleanor Zellman, or Eleanor Audley, sorry, was her. Eleanor Zellman was her um, maiden name. Anyway, yeah, that's interesting. I just pulled up a picture to see if she kind of looks like her. But she looks, uh, she looks a lot nicer than the stepmother. <laughs> but, like, I can kind of see, you know, how they can still use her as a reference. So this is our third film in our uh, theme month of kind of costumes and fashion and... Makeup, I guess. Um, Of course, this film is animated. So, you know, to what extent is this costuming? We're going to get into that. And I want to start off the discussion by asking you, which Cinderella dress was your favorite? So I think the, the one that got torn up, with the exception of maybe the weird like shoulder pad shoulder pad thing that was going on. I wasn't a fan of that. But otherwise, I actually really liked that dress. The pink one? The pink one, right. Uh, but that may that also may only be because they had such an extended sequence of them like crafting it. So I think that may have been a, a big part of why it kind of like you watch it come together. Man, you messed up my whole setup. But oh, no. <laughs> that was the wrong answer. <laughs> no. <laughs> that, that, that's okay, though. Um, and I do, like, I remember being a kid and watching this movie, and I think that was my favorite sequence in the whole film, is when the mice are putting the dress together. Because I loved, like, I loved how-to videos when I was a kid. Not how-to, but just, like, this is the way it's made, that kind of stuff. So the person you could give credit to as the costume designer, perhaps, was Mary Blair. Um, She was an animator with Disney at the time, but she, for this film, functioned as the concept artist and stylist, basically. If you're unfamiliar with concept art, it's basically pretty detailed uh, art that's done before they make a movie to get a visual idea of what they're aiming for. Looking at her concept art... It looks like she might have been working in pastels. That's how it looks to me. And it's usually very colorful. And you and the animators get ideas of their character. And I don't know if you would call it sets, like background designs, based on what the concept artist comes up with. And Disney, of course, as we discussed, had come off this very difficult uh, period financially. And Walt Disney was really worried about keeping the company's products relevant. And Mary Blair was seen as somebody who was relatively young and hip, I guess. So that's why uh, they picked her to do the concept art for this. Her concept art, if you look at it, is... and compared to concept art that had been done for Disney before Cinderella, hers is very much more abstract. David, I have a couple of her works like down below. Do you think you could 
describe them a little bit, what you see in there? So basically what we have is an image of Cinderella in the kind of the rags of the dress that her her stepsisters tore up. And another image of her and the the prince dancing in this kind of um kind of levitating platform with columns next to it in what looks to be winter. So very very much like they're in this kind of void of bliss dancing together. Uh, and it does seem like the the focus seems to be a lot more on the use of colors as well as uh, in the first image is this kind of checkered pattern on the floor that seems very prominent. Yeah, that's that's a really good description. And her concept art, if you Google it, which if you're listening, please Google Mary Blair Cinderella concept art. It's really beautiful to look at. Um, but the an- the other animators hated it because since it was so relatively abstract, it was more difficult for them to come up with an, with character designs and backgrounds that were animatable because her her little human characters mess with proportions a lot and don't have well-defined edges and all those other things. But I think her color palette was really incredibly influential on the movie. And we have good reason to believe that all the quote-unquote costume designs for the characters were taken from her concept art because they seem to match up so closely with the final product. What Mary Blair did and what Disney has a history of doing in its movies is that they utilize contemporary fashion even when the movie takes place in some hard-to-define historical period, they still use contemporaneous fashion. And, you know, that's really common in any movie. Any movie, even if it's a period piece, is likely to be influenced by the time in which it's made, both in terms of costuming, but in terms of everything else as well. As I said, this was very purposeful on the part of Disney to keep their films relevant. talk about two very influential 20th century designers who some people believe play a role in Cinderella um, somewhere under the surface. So the first person we're going to talk about is Elsa Scaparelli. She was an Italian-French designer who was influential in the interwar years. And she was very famous for whimsical designs, the color pink, large bows, Um, And just having a lot of different colors in one outfit, kind of crazy hats. You can Google Elsa Scaparelli lobster dress to get an idea of what we're talking about. But David, I have a couple pictures here side by side. What do you see in those? Right. So we have um, a screen grab of Cinderella in her her first dress for the the ball, the one that gets uh, ripped up before it's torn up. And I think most prominent is the kind of the the really oversized bow that she has on her chest. The next image we have is Chaparelli, who also has like this really extravagant large bow. Although the photo is in black and white, but it appears to be a white bow. It's hard to tell because it's not like an entire photo of her. But it doesn't look um, quite as, I guess, quite as dressy. Like Cinderella's dress, she doesn't, she has kind of the shoulder pad thing going on, but she doesn't have any sleeves. Whereas Chaparelli has um, kind of sleeves, something that looks a little bit more like a jacket. 
it's like dress wear, but kind of in a business direction, maybe. Right. And then it has this big goofy bow bursting out in the middle, right? R- like that's the essence of her. <laughs> I do I do want to say I actually like the bow a lot better on her than I like it on the the Cinderella image. Uh I think it it like clashes in a really nice way. <laughs> well, we're gonna get into it, but there's a reason why um Cinderella's first the the dress that the mice make for her as it's made out of love and and everything but it's a little bit hard on the eyes in some ways in this particular picture Cinderella not only does she have the bow on her chest but she's got a little bow in her headband and we can't see it but at the bottom of her dress there were bows all around the hem so it's just like bows 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 everywhere some people think um, this is a is a, a representation of Scaparelli's interwar uh, style. Scaparelli also collaborated with Salvador Dali, actually, and they made this dress uh, called Tear. And I'm going to ask you again, David, if you could explain the two pictures we see down there. We have Cinderella with the fairy godmother, and Cinderella is wearing the torn-up dress, and so the um, the shoulder, the like white shoulder pads have been torn off, and one of the um, one of the straps is missing. So it's got kind of a, a toga element going going for it, and it's kind of tattered. Like she, it looks like she has kind of a blue uh, undergarment, a uh, night dress, I suppose, um, uh, underneath it. And so we have this kind of pink over blue where the blue is is peeking out and then in the photo of a uh, of the tear dress uh we have a woman who's got it appears to be kind of a, a veil on that's primarily white but it's got these little fragments that are really bright pink uh that look i suppose as a, the title would imply look like the the veil has been torn in certain parts Right. And I need to, I'm going to mention um, him again in the credits, but I, or in the sources, but I need to um, mention here Emanuele Lugli, who wrote about these observations. So a lot of this is very much indebted to his article. Um, he apparently called the Victoria and Albert Museum that has this uh, Dolly Scaparelli collaboration dress. And evidently the white part of the dress used to be blue. It's just that it's faded over time. So if it's blue and that kind of reddish pink color, the effect is very, very similar to Cinderella's torn up dress in the movie. Lugli guesses that Mary Blair or some of the people involved in the making of the movie took inspiration from these Scaparelli designs. Um, Additionally, the stepsisters in the movie, when they go to the ball, they wear bustles, which if you're unfamiliar with those, those are just the contraptions that made the back part of your dress kind of puff out. There's like a structure underneath it to hold it up. And Scaparelli also did dresses that had not exactly a bustle, but the fabric was coordinated in such a way that it stuck up and gave like a little bit of a bump in the rear end part of the dress. So it kind of looks a little bit like a bustle. So that may have also been an allusion to Scaparelli designs. Scaparelli, at the outbreak of World War II, she fled to America and she waited out the war there. And by the time she returned to Europe, she was out of favor. 
I wonder, David, based on the Scaparelli designs we see here, uh, we've got those bustle dresses I mentioned and the others you described. What do you think of them? Do you like them or not? Or what's your overall impression? Uh, they're certainly unique. I think um, if I saw someone wearing one of these, I would probably be puzzled, uh, particularly with the bustle. That is certainly something that has gone out of fashion. I think they're they're really interesting. One thing I did want to note about the stepsisters and their bustle versus the, the dresses that you're showing here, the stepsisters, their dresses and the bustle, it, it felt very much like when you're watching the movie and they animated, the bustles kind of move in some ways independently of how the <laughs> yeah. stepsisters are moving. So it's very um, uh, kind of mocking, right? Trying to make them look ridiculous. And it seems like part of that is also the the pattern. And well, there's basically not really a pattern with these dresses. Everything is a flat color. Um, and it seems like they're really deliberately trying to make something that's um, kind of an eyesore. Yeah, I really think that Scaparelli's designs are gorgeous. And they, I mean, everybody has different tastes and hers aren't my favorite favorite, but I do think they're very pretty and very innovative. However, the way they're, they're, the way they're interpreted in this movie is largely unflattering. So we know Scaparelli by the 1950s is out of favor. So what got big in the 1950s? Christian Dior got big in the 1950s. Um, Dior was a French designer who opened his brand in 1947 with something that Harper's Bazaar called the new look. And he had um, maybe a couple key silhouettes that he worked with, but there's one in particular that we're going to talk about here um, because it's so influential. And if you are familiar at all with 50s garments, you will know this look. And we discussed it also in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers because it's so prominent there. So basically, the silhouette is, uh, in women's clothing, very small shoulders in contrast with the shoulder pads that we had in the 40s, right? A very slim waist aided by a girdle. Um, and very, very large, bountiful skirts. And you had them in different lengths. They could be uh, T-length, which is above the ankle, or it could be um, all the way to the floor if it's an evening gown. But in general, they were very long. Um, this was also in contrast to the 40s, because in the 40s, because of rationing, they couldn't get their hands on enough fabric to make longer skirts. So dresses and skirts wound up being shorter. So Dior was actually criticized when he started his collection in 1947 for using so much fabric because people's mindset was still in a state of uh, we have to we have to conserve and you know Europe was just out of war still recovering perhaps as a reaction to all this uh, wartime buckling down Christian Dior went totally opposite and he echoed as i said in our previous episode the French Belle Epoque which is late 19th century, early 20th century, the very slim waist, the very big skirts of that era. Um, and so he was also criticized for being a little bit backwards because those designs uh, limited women's movement um, just because of the, you know, the restrictive un undergarments um, and the length of the skirts and all these things. We can see the influence very clearly in Cinderella's ball gown uh, that the fairy godmother makes for her. 
Um, and David here, I have a picture of Cinderella and a picture of a Christian Dior design. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? We have uh, the image of Cinderella in her like final evening gown, uh, which is silver in this photo. And like you said, it's very kind of very small waist, and then it, it really bellows out uh, kind of towards the ends. She has she has, I guess, like a hairband kind of tiara thing going on. Uh, as well as really long gloves that reach up to her to her upper arms, um, and still those shoulder pads from the previous dress. <laughs> um, and then uh, the photo is of a woman who is standing in front of the Eiffel Tower, and we see a very similar thing going on uh, with the dress again, the slim waist and the 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 skirt that bellows out. Uh, the the major difference, I think, being that as opposed to, although she does appear to be wearing gloves as well, uh, instead of just having the kind of sleeveless dress with the gloves, uh, the the dress the top has sleeves as well. Um, so she looks a little bit more bundled, I suppose. Oh yeah, probably dressed for a different weather. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, and I think it's really so. Overall, the silhouette is the same, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and it's good that you pointed out Cinderella's sleeves, the little kind of puffy, shoulder paddy looking sleeves, because in large part, I think the silhouette is inspired by Dior's designs. But, you know, they're still playing with a fairy tale, still playing with some indeterminate time in the past. So they're still going to add little accents that make it look fairy tale-ish or historical. So I think that's what that might have been. Cinderella is also wearing a choker, which I believe was common on uh, pinup models in the 40s. And her hairstyle, you commented on the headband, and her hair is also piled up in a kind of bun. That would have been something that some women wore in the late 40s. So that was also a contemporary influence. So what's going on here? I think, and um, Mr. Lugley believes, Uh, specifically, that this film was making a distinction in the transition uh, between Scaparelli's designs, which they show in maybe not such a flattering like, and Christian Dior's designs, which were at the time, 1950, very new and apparently very, very talked about. It was something that everybody was talking about because his designs were so, so influential and as you can see, he's one brand, but everybody who was wearing the silhouette was not wearing Christian Dior. They were wearing designs by other clothing manufacturers who just imitated that style, right? So it was hugely influential. So perhaps um, the filmmakers were, or somebody who was involved in making this film decided to portray that. We could perhaps perceive uh, the the fairy godmother in the film as being the fashion designer, as being the Christian Dior of this film, because, you know, in her first dress, which, David, you talked about, you liked it so much because the, the mice and the birds made it, right? You get to see all the work they put into making that dress by hand. But we can kind of think of that as what women would have been doing perhaps during the war, war years is making their own clothes. And making your own clothes was a common thing up through maybe the 60s for a lot of people, but it would have been even more common in the 40s when 
people just couldn't go out and buy new outfits all the time, right? They might have been taking old garments and reworking the fabric into new styles that fit the trends of the 40s. By contrast to the mice working away during wartime, the godmother is something like a fashion designer. So some fashion designers, including Christian Dior and including Scaparelli, I believe, some of them actually couldn't sew. They drew their designs or sometimes would drape the fabric on the models, and then they would hand it off to their tailors and seamstresses and be like, make this. So the tailors and seamstresses were not only doing all the manual labor, but they were the ones who had to have the, I guess, architectural knowledge to figure out how to change this designer's crazy design on paper into something that could actually physically function in fabric. Of course, there was still a lot of work going into these dresses, but from the designer's perspective, from Christian Dior's perspective, it's almost like he's a fairy godmother, right? He just waves his wand, he makes a design, and somebody else goes off and makes it, versus the mice who are making it themselves. Um, and in the movie, uh, you can see the fairy godmother, she uses her wand like a tape measure when she kind of... This is the only thing that she does that indicates that she's really doing some kind of work where she <laughs> kind of <laughs> measures uh, Cinderella's proportions and then she waves it around and makes a dress. Um, and, um, you know, there's a very famous photograph of Christian Dior measuring the distance from the hem of his uh, skirt he designed to the floor. Um, so it looks a little bit similar. Um, in real life, Christian Dior actually had financial backing from his godmother to start his brand, which is another interesting thing to think about because he couldn't have launched his brand without that financial help and Cinderella couldn't have gone to the ball without her fairy godmother. And even Amanda Halle at The Ultimate Fashion History thinks that the fairy godmother looks a little bit like Christian Dior. Um, just in the face. You know, I can totally, you have in the notes, you have a photo side by side of the two of them. And I think you can totally see that. Uh, as a side note, Christian Dior was apparently not a looker. So that probably plays into it. Oh, <laughs> in any case, Dior, as I said, started his label in 1947. And then he went to tour the United States. He went to New York City, Dallas, Chicago, San Francisco and Los Angeles. And he was widely celebrated. As I said, everybody was talking about it. And Cinderella began production shortly thereafter. So we can imagine that the Disney folks working in L.A. would have been exposed to, you know, Dior's visit. Um, and Dior later, when he wrote his autobiography, I believe in 1956, did uh, mention Cinderella and compared himself, uh, compared fashion designers to fairy godmothers. So it was all pretty explicit. I put here a few photos of some other Christian Dior designs, and I wonder, David, what you think about them and how you think about them in comparison to the Scaparelli designs we saw earlier. Well, so we have three, um, I would say, pretty radically different designs. Um, and the first one we have, uh, kind of similar, again, the uh, dress that's that's a small waisted but bellows out, just not, I wouldn't say to the same degree as, as kind of Cinderella's or the previous dresses we saw. Uh, but it does seem to have more of a, a distinct like pattern to it, um, as well as it's buttoned from what I can tell. So, so that looks distinct, but we do also see kind of the longer gloves on the arms. 
Um, and then we have uh, another photo of a woman who is sitting down who has the biggest skirt. Uh, <laughs> and it it kind of looks like a wedding dress a little bit with very, very light um, sleeves where the, the fabric uh, may be transparent, it looks like. And then below we have uh, a design that is kind of more... Um, uh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know what you would call it, but like, uh, she, I mean, it looks like she's wearing pants, right? It's a skirt, but the, I mentioned earlier that Dior had a, a couple different silhouettes. This is just an example of a different silhouette and it was a very narrow fitting skirt. I'm not sure if they called it this at the time this design came out, but by the mid fifties, they called it the little skirt because, or no, sorry, the little dress. Because um, it was so tight fitting and you really had to have your undergarments in gear to make sure your figure fit inside. Obviously, it's very different from this, but it, in some ways it reminds me a little bit of, of like the flapper style. Not, it's not that, that same kind of like hyper slim androgynous look, but I think it's kind of more in that direction because it's not as like flowery and, and uh, blossoming, I suppose. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I'm not really one to, to criticize uh, fashion just because I know so little about it. I mean, I, I think all of these photos look really interesting. I think the styles are distinctive, but Again, like I think every everything you pulled out about Dior being compared to the Godmother and like this film being so much about fashion, even though we were doing this, you know, doing this film for this theme month, most of this went over my head. Oh, when you watch the movie, you mean? Yeah, to, like the I didn't even I didn't even catch the Godmother, you know, doing the tape measure on her, right? <laughs> which is a very uh, funny detail. Well, right, it's just like. And I wouldn't have thought to do this because I hadn't seen Cinderella in so long, except that I read an article that drew all these comparisons. And I was like, oh, that's genius. I see it all now. <laughs> so the last thing I wanted to mention on the topic of fashion is what color do you think Cinderella's ball gown was? Uh, that The one that she that the godmother made for her. OK, so this is so clearly a trick question. And I am apprehensive about answering it uh, it's a meme <laughs> <laughs> that's right the um blue blue or gold was that the meme it was something like that yeah <laughs> uh, gee before the world was ending we were arguing about this stuff uh, uh to me it was silver um and i guess maybe the uh the version i saw was silver oh what version did you see uh the whatever they had on disney plus so this the reason i asked this question is because it segues into our next topic um, but pretty much Cinderella's dress in the movie as it was originally released in 1950 is supposed to be like a silverish white color with blue when there are like shadows pretty much. And the reason we think this is because the toys that were released at the time um, show Cinderella in a whitish silvery dress. But the reason that people think that that a lot of people now think it's blue. So you didn't think it was blue, but a lot of people now think it's blue. Um, the reason people think it's blue is because there's some parts of the film where she's dancing in the shadows with, with the prince where it looks more blue, but also because this film, because of its age, has gone through various restorations, and it seems like certain restorations brought out the blue more so uh, to the point that we think 
her dress is blue. So let's talk about quote unquote restoration. What I have next is my last pair of photos. Sorry. (laughs) And um, what can you tell us about these two uh, screen grabs that you're looking at? Well, the um, the first, which appears to be from um, uh, not necessarily unrestored, but like earlier version of the film, uh, Cinderella is in a silver version of her dress. And she's um, I believe it's a segment where she's running down the stairs because, uh, you know, the clock has struck midnight and she has to get away before she's revealed to be who she is. Um, and she's running down the steps and we see the steps are are red but they're kind of such a diluted red they appear almost rust colored and they're very grainy there's a lot of texture to them and then next to that we have a kind of i would say an almost identical frame uh but in this frame her dress is blue and the stairs are very clearly like red carpeted right this um these two stills were pointed out by Stephen Dinian on Twitter and um he points out all the things you mentioned but also and, and and to be clear the first photo that we're looking at is from an earlier version and the next photo is from Cinderella the Blu-ray release of Cinderella and not only has the color changed, but a lot of the line work has vanished. If you notice, the creases in her dress are missing. Also, her fingers seem to have whittled away. It's very... Is this restoration? Is what I was thinking. <laughs> um, you guys, if you, you got you got to Google this and, and, and look it up because it's just crazy to look at. Apparently, Disney's process of restoration for their classic feature-length animation consists of rotoscoping out every frame from the original background. So pretty much you have the background and then you have the moving figures. So they would take out those moving figures and then they would more or less paste those figures onto a background that they had cleaned up. So rather than taking the film as it is with everything already put together, the moving parts and the background, they're literally taking it apart part by part changing things and reassembling them. So this is not just let's clean up these little scratches here and there. It's almost like let's reanimate this movie in a way. And you pointed out, David, that the second picture has very little grain. And also a lot of times when they do this, they get rid of something called gate weave, which as I understand it is when film gets older, it tends to move back and forth a little bit so that the image is a little bit shaky. That's something that I think we come to expect on older movies, but Disney does its very best to erase it out of these restorations. And um, I didn't read details on this, but um, some people were also complaining about them having a similar heavy-handed approach to quote-unquote remastering the audio on their films as well. And I wonder, David... Why do you think some companies take this heavy-handed approach and do you know of any movement towards like unrestoring or like leaving things alone when it comes to these older movies? To answer your second question first, actually, I don't know of any specific movement over this. I know um, 
There's kind of a lot of back and forth over how films are presented, particularly in home media. So like DVDs, but now Blu-rays and I guess streaming as well, particularly with, uh, you know, any film buffs out there will surely know the Criterion Collection, which is a, a, a company. Essentially what they do is they acquire the distribution rights to different films and they create like a really elaborate package right so you buy a dvd you get a little booklet that has multiple essays about the film and then pretty frequently if the director is alive they have like the signature of the director marking off their approval of the specific transfer there's a large group of people out there i think who are really specifically interested in a a certain type of quality within their film and Again, because auteur theory, although debated, is so prevalent when you have a DVD that has the signature of the director approving the visual image, and it's kind of, oh, we can, you know, we can calm down and say this is the best possible version of this film. This is, a, the, you know, the, the definitive version of the film. Disney, I, I doubt this is any big secret, but Disney is nowhere near as interested in preserving itself in terms of film legacy as it is in in kind of making itself broadly appealing as a company towards, you know, all people and like, what are children but a new market? I feel so gross saying that, but I think that's the thought pattern there. Children are probably not accustomed to seeing grain on film, especially you know, if you take an eight-year-old today, they were born in the year 2012. You know, by the time they were starting to see media, they could remember it was primarily digital anyway. So film grain is really strange to them. And what do they care if, like you were saying in the difference between these two photos, like the line work is deteriorated, right? It looks more like something they would watch today. And so that's why they want to make it look like that. It has to be timeless. And for it to be timeless, it has to adhere to the standards of the modern day. I think this is a really, really complicated discussion. And I think right now it's a little bit quieter in the film world. But over the past 10 plus years, we've seen the the reinvigoration of analog audio. So analog being... Uh, vinyl records and cassette tapes uh, and kind of a new group of, of audiophiles and music fans clamoring for those those uh, previously perceived to be dead formats specifically because they have a particular quality that is unique to them, right? So it's like, who wants to listen to the, you know, remastered, hyper-compressed, flattened Led Zeppelin four when you could obtain an original vinyl of it, right? And have kind of all the warmth and scratchiness within that. So to, you know, to your question about the specific movement about like leaving things as they are, I don't know that there's, there's any kind of organization to this, but I think we do see a lot of people who are looking, you know, as everything is becoming more and more digital and, and supposedly higher quality, there are going to be a lot of people who are looking for the, well, the lower quality, supposedly. Again, that's a whole other discussion. But, like, I want the quality that it was originally at or the way the film looks as it naturally deteriorates because that's part of the experience anyway. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. My thoughts as well, that they're just trying to make the movie look like all the 
I'm sorry, garbage YouTube videos that kids are watching nowadays, <laughs> um, as well as a lot of animated stuff on TV, which may be a better quality. I wonder if it isn't too much of an assumption to say that kids wouldn't like grain because we grew up watching Disney movies and like granted we didn't have like the digital animation at least not when we were really young so and like also granted that the Disney we watch would have been at least somewhat restored but I don't ever recall feeling like oh this is old I don't want to watch that I felt that about black and white live action movies but I think that's because those were mostly for adults um, kid, like for me, kid media that was made in 1950 still worked in 1990. I wonder if they're not doing this all for no reason, you know? Oh, well, I think that, you know, that can probably explain any number of corporate decisions at, at Disney and kind of anywhere else. Um, I told, I mean, I totally agree with you. I don't know. I don't know that to kids it would actually make that big of a difference, but then it's difficult as well because there, there is also, I don't, have you heard of the orange and blue, the like kind of movie poster orange and blue phenomenon? No. Okay. So some years back there was, is this like the dress? Is it gold or blue? Like, is it that? (laughs) No, it's worse. Uh, <laughs> so some years ago, there was a study conducted uh, that basically indicated that like the colors orange and blue stand out to people more than they're it, they're of the color spectrum. They're like the most standout colors, right? They they grab your attention or whatever. And so as movie studios found this out now, and they're you know I'm sure they're. Twitter threads, I remember seeing Reddit posts about this years ago, kind of since the 2000s, there's just been a slew of of movie posters that are entirely in blue and orange. They all have the same color scheme because they're trying to, you know, like capitalize on that supposed increased in attention. Um, I've not seen that study. And frankly, at this point, like it's kind of immaterial whether that's actually true or not. Now it's just something they do. And I think that that much can be said about these restorations or, or you know, the, the visual work that is done on older films here is that it's, it doesn't necessarily matter if it does actually appeal to younger people at all. It's just like, well, it's, digital it must be better uh i remember being at at a party like years ago and for some reason people were talking about about like uh media quality and i referenced the fact that like vhs movies have like a distinct you know there's a uh, distinct experience watching a movie on vhs versus like digital media dvd or blu-ray and it kind of got laughed out of the room the entire time while i was trying to explain myself um but I think that's a really good kind of uh, example of what what corporations perceive the public to be and possibly what the public is. The idea that, like, well, because we are advanced, because we have more technology than we did, whatever we do now is improved. And so with this, I think you get George Lucas justifying like putting a bunch of cg elements into you know a, his film from the 1970s right like it doesn't necessarily make sense but the idea is that we're farther into the future than we were back then whatever we do must be better so evidently and the reason i brought up the question about a movement toward unrestoring movies is that a couple of years ago 2001 a space odyssey was 
released advertised as um i believe unrestored was how they advertised it so i just wondered whether there that might be part of a broader movement perhaps akin to you know records and cassette tapes like you were talking about gosh perhaps but i don't i don't really know i perhaps part of the reason that hasn't taken off as much with film is because like kind of doing the analog equivalent for film is much more cumbersome because you need like a 35 millimeter or possibly even 75 or 70 millimeter film reel, as well as like a projector that can run that, um, which is considerably more expensive than buying like a $60 turntable and a $20 like Beatles record or what have you. That's about all I have today. I wondered if you had any final thoughts. You know, I didn't even touch on the music in this movie. There was a lot of stuff I couldn't talk about because I like talking about dresses. (laughs) But do you have any final comments? Well, I mean, that's also like this is such a famous film. It's it's going to be impossible to cover everything. Uh, I had alluded to this at, at the beginning. I just wanted to mention again how interesting it is. In some ways, this feels like like there is maybe a 60 minute movie and a 17 minute movie and they've been kind of smushed together uh to create this film and that i guess that sounds more more confused than i mean it but i think this movie has a tremendous amount of value as kind of a series of cartoon shorts with the same characters uh so lucifer the cat who has a tremendous amount of personality and like the the animation for him is really brilliant and they have all these wonderful sight gags uh with him as well as the um the king and the duke uh but at the same time every once in a while and during you know i guess that 20 minute segment kind of in the the later middle part of the film you're you're bombarded with all these really intricate images of like the castle and and kind of the surrounding like the woods and it looks very much like i guess like you remember the movie you remember the movie by these fairy tale like elaborate drawings but then so much of it is this kind of saturday morning cartoon thing um mm. it's really i think it's really great going back and re-watching this because it's really unexpected i think that Again, I I know I'm kind of repeating myself, but I think that really blew me away is a very good reason to revisit the film. I'm wondering, I know maybe you don't like these kind of questions, but roughly where would you put this in your hierarchy of Disney animated movies? I think I would have to I would have to rewatch more of them to have a real strong sense. Um still fairly low although again like disney quality is so high it's you know that is hardly an insult but i think my favorite parts of this film were the horror moments with the stepmother (laughs) like i i really do i really think oh i thought you were gonna say the cat (laughs) (laughs) the cat is also brilliant um but like artistically i think there's the stepmother and the kind of the the horror and what they do with that as well as um cinderella descending kind of her little tower of their house uh and and the the sort of foreshadowing of her existence there in the design of those like wood steps is really creepy um i think those moments are brilliant and i just wanted more of them and i think you get more of them in something like sleeping beauty which um has a lot of similarities to this film but i think has a much more developed villain 
that really like leaves her mark in a more severe way. And that I, I don't, you know, I'm really into horror. So I think that's kind of always what I'm looking for. Where, what, um, I guess, what did you, I know you're, you're a huge fan of, um, Disney movies. Where do you kind of think this sits for you? I think like you, I'd have to go back and rewatch a lot of them, but I will say that I liked this a lot more than I remembered it. Um, because when I was in high school, I had a little bit of a resurgence where I went back and watched a lot of Disney that I was into when I was like littler. Um, but Cinderella wasn't one of those films. It was a lot of, um, Aladdin, um, and well, Mulan, I don't think I ever stopped watching Mulan, but like, <laughs> um, a lot of those films, um, cause Cinderella, I never remembered it as something that I liked as much, but, um, I really enjoyed it watching this, watching it this time. And, um, you know, who knows? It, it it might it might be up there. Um, I'd like to thank my sources today. So I did mention uh Steven Dinian on Twitter. Um, I believe he works in animation. Um, so you can check him out. All of these, by the way, are in our show notes, as always. Also, uh Amanda Halley at the Ultimate Fashion History on YouTube has a great video all about the fashion in Cinderella. Um Emanuele Lugli at Bright Lights Film Journal talked all about especially uh, Scaparelli's fashion's representation in this film. Also, Brett White at Decider. And finally, Wikipedia. If you want to connect with us on social media, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Facebook and Instagram, at Mayday Matinee on Twitter. And if you search Maybe Today Matinee on Patreon, you can throw us a few coins. Check in next week for the final film in our costume fashion theme, 1960s Breathless. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) 